Chapter 19 of The Cliff Dwellers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado. The Cliff Dwellers by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 19. Late one afternoon, Ogden drew down his desktop, put on his street coat, felt in his pocket to be sure that Atwater's tasteful memorandum was still there, and took the elevator up to the 18th floor. He had been as conscious of that memorandum all through the day as he would have been of a mustard plaster. On taking it out and recreasing its immaculate folds, he almost felt as if he were about to dispute a debt of honor. Atwater was in, but he was completely taken up in radiating his careful affability upon some promising clients who wanted not only doors, but the house that went with them. Ogden got no closer to him than to secure the attention of the clerk whose duty it was to mediate between the contractors and the plans they were to follow. He was an alert, nervous young man with a big shock of unruly hair and a big pair of large, luminous eyes behind his hooked and shimmering spectacles. He ran his long, lean, inky fingers through his hair and transferred his wide eyes from the memorandum to the man who had brought it in. No, he said presently. It's all right. There's no mistake. Mr. Atwater took a good deal of interest in this work. He sketched out some of the drawings himself to start with, and he even touched up a few of them to finish with. Touched up a few of them to finish with? George repeated inquiringly. Yes, he doesn't do that often. When he does, it makes a difference. It ought to. The whole matter was coming to assume the aspect of a personal favor. It was a debt of honor, after all. The grocer, the upholsterer, and the rest of them might wait. It would give them time to learn the value of an elegant presence and the compelling force of personal acquaintance. The doors, hung and paid for, swung open many times during the following winter and spring to admit people whom, as his wife assured him, it was an advantage to know. He became conscious that she was actuated by motives quite different from his and that she had a standard quite at variance from any that he himself would have set up. She strained for people that he would not have turned his hand for. Most of these had familiar names, and it sometimes seemed to him as if many of them had had their place in the social yearnings of Cornelia McNabb. Certainly his wife's attitude was quite different from that of the Floyds, who had been disposed to poo-poo quietly almost everybody, and also from that of her parents, who simply accepted the circle that chance and association had formed for them, and met everybody on the same dead level of goodwill. During Lent his wife arranged a small musicale. Another Mary Munson had arrived, this time from Cincinnati. The names of the performers included only those of amateurs of the better sort, since she knew that good professional services were quite beyond their reach. Yet chairs, awning, and refreshments called for the expense of outside supervision. The morning before it, she put a slip of paper into his hands. "'You are going right past the Tribune. Won't you just leave this with them?' It was an announcement of her musicale. It included a list of names, not those of the performers, but those of the listeners. "'All old friends in print,' her husband commented. "'What do you care for these people?' Why don't you ask the Fairchilds? 
They're quiet, but they're nice. And they like music. Why don't you have your father and mother? I haven't seen either of them for a month. His wife writhed delicately in protest. Her winter had increased her paleness. The blue veins were bluer in her temples. Her large eyes looked larger yet, and there were faint circles under them. Well, Cecilia doesn't fancy Mrs. Fairchild very much in the first place. George bit his lip. By the curious workings of chance, he had never yet seen Cecilia Ingalls, but he no longer joked about her non-actuality. She appeared to be looming up as the great power in his household. And besides, she proceeded, who would recognize their names if they saw them in print? George stood like a looker-on at a transformation scene, before whose eyes the gauze veils are lifted one by one in slow succession. Oh, then, he said, and less in jest than in earnest. There is no use in enjoying ourselves unless we put it in the papers, and no use of putting it in the papers unless we can give a list of names, and no— Now, George, she flushed with vexation— and no use of putting in a list of names unless they are names that will be generally recognized. Well, that does cut out the Fairchilds, and your poor mother, too, and mine. He looked at her narrowly. Now, George, she cried again, how can you be so disagreeable? You know Papa and Mama wouldn't care anything for this, nor your mother either, and it isn't the only thing I'm ever going to have. I can ask her yet, though, if you want me to. Oh, fiddlesticks, only don't lose your head. Here, give me that precious notice. Perhaps, before long, people who are after names will be just as anxious to get yours. You silly boy, she cried, striking him lightly across the shoulder. But she was pleased and gratified by this, and she was not able to conceal it. Following Lent, there was the usual social aftermath. For Mrs. George Millward Ogden, the major stress of the season was over, but she gave a few luncheons, and she went to a good many others. These little functions sent dozens of ladies tripping through the raw winds and the slushy streets of spring. The lake, weltering under the gray skies of March, dashed its vicious sprays high over the sea wall and sent its cruel blasts gashingly through the streets that ended on its confines and at such signals asthma and bronchitis and pneumonia dug their clutching fingers into the throats and lungs of thousands of tender sufferers. Jessie's supplementary doings were of too informal a nature to demand the entrance of outside help, but at the same time they were of a kind to lay the maximum strain upon the small and simply organized household which was all that her husband was as yet able to maintain. About every so often, the domestic tension overtook the breaking point. An interregnum would follow, and then a change of dynasty. The blame for these economic hitches George was obliged to distribute with an even hand. He acknowledged frankly the mere muddishness of most of the peasant material that oozed in and out of his kitchen, but he was also obliged to recognize the utter tactlessness of his wife and the folly of her unguarded exhibitions of conscious superiority. She had never before been able to issue directions to two servants, and she had never acquired the practical experience necessary for the control of even one. She referred to her servants in their own hearing as servants, and this did not seem to her as inconsiderate from the point of humanity or unwise as a mere matter of policy. The burden of this fell principally upon her husband— 
He was obliged now and then to temporize with an indignant cook to secure a dinner for the evening. On one occasion, he employed all his finesse to effect without scandal the removal of a frantic chambermaid, and he became more familiarly known to the intelligence offices than he had ever expected to be. His wife was manifestly incapable of keeping a house, and he was committed to housekeeping for a year to come. March passed, and April came. One evening they sat together in their little parlor. The weather outside was raw and rainy, and not all of its chill could be kept out by the great fire over which Jessie was cowering and shivering. She wore a fleecy wrap on which her thin fingers took a sinuous clutch, and she was nursing a cold whose sniffling discomfort seemed passing into an obstinate cough. She was running over the newspaper carelessly. "'I see Mamie Brainerd's mother has just died,' she said presently. "'On the 8th of April, at her residence, and all that, "'Abigail Brainard, aged fifty-six years. "'Wasn't she any older than that? "'Well, I suppose not. "'No great change for her, is it?' "'What did she die of?' "'Oh, it was her lungs. "'It's a wonder that anybody lives through these springs. "'I can't think why we ever got so close to the lake as this.' I don't feel sure of getting through another winter here myself. She leaned forward to stir the fire, and then lay back coughing. I suppose they'll let Mamie come home now, for the funeral anyway. I wonder if she'll bring the baby. He swears he won't see it. Cornelia says it's a pretty little thing. Abby was down there a month ago. George stared at the fire thoughtfully, and reached mechanically for the poker. "'I don't know how they will feel now about staying in that house,' she went on. "'Cornelia wants to move the whole family over here, but Abby won't listen to her. "'I don't know whether she likes her own part of town, but she seems to have taken a strong dislike to this. "'Anyway, she has never come near me, for all you helped them at her brother's wedding. "'Cornelia appears to think everything of her, though, and I guess she likes Cornelia quite a little. "'Funny, isn't it, that those two... "'Goodness, George, don't knock the fire all to pieces. "'Here, let me have it.' "'She took the poker from him. "'Dear me, what a miserable flu!' "'She looked at him discontentedly "'as she settled back wearily in her big chair. "'And we've really got this house on our hands "'for a whole year more?' "'She seemed to feel in this one year "'the weight of eternity. "'That's what the lease says,' he responded soberly. "'What do you say?' his eyes seemed to ask. She spoke her thoughts presently and at some length. She proposed giving up the house on the 1st of May. Was it a passing caprice or a serious desire, he wondered. Shall you take your porch and your doors with you? he asked with a sorry smile. They cost enough to be worth considering. No, she answered, with the simple literalness that builds a stone wall in a moment. We shouldn't need them in an apartment house. That's the idea, is it? Yes, it strikes me that that would be the best thing all around, an apartment house, with a cafe or something. Lots of nice people live that way now. Look at Cecilia Ingalls's cousin. She is invited everywhere, and she entertains just the same as if she was in her own house. It's too hard work for me to run things like this, and I've just got to get farther away from this miserable lake. There's all the furniture. We could use some of it. And store the rest? Yes, or auction it. Small profit in either. 
What are you going to do with the lease? Store it or auction it or use it for furnishing? Her lip quivered sensitively. Why, I supposed... Yes, we can sublet the house if anybody is found to take it. There was something of a wait before we took it. There might be another. There's that Mrs. Cass. I don't know how much she could do in three weeks. A good many people are fixed by this time. Two weeks sooner would have made some difference. I couldn't very well afford to carry the house all through the summer. There's a bottom to our pocketbook, and we are getting to it faster than you think. This was a figure of speech that called for no direct response, for, Well, she went on, that's my idea, a flat, with our meals. This would give me my chance to get away for a part of the summer. I'm sure I need it. Away for part of the summer? Yes, Mary Munson was saying something about my going to the White Mountains with her in July. They would do me good. Though perhaps the seashore might be better, plenty of those down-east people are indebted to me now. Another of those gauze veils was lifting. Married life was but a prolongation of girlhood, with all its associations and peregrinations. Where did the husband come in? They left the house on the 1st of May. George recognized by this time the essential slightness and incapacity of his wife, and renounced the possibility of a home in any but a modified sense. Part of their goods were sacrificed at auction, part were stored at a rate that would have provided a home for a working man's family, a few pieces were utilized in filling up a partly furnished flat, and the deserted house remained vacant throughout the summer. It was not until October that its ornate front and its tasteful decorations caught the eye of the right man, and by October a complication of interests had made a vacant house the very least of Ogden's concerns. The place came under the consideration of the Floyds as soon as the intentions of the Ogdens became known. A decided change had come over the Walworth's affairs. A less expensive house than his present one now seemed a great advantage, but his own lease ran for a year or more. Besides, his wife had too high an idea of their position and its dues to think of succeeding the young Ogdens in such a tenancy. The Floyds, as a matter of fact, were sinking to bedrock a foothold whose reality they had never tested yet, and there need be no wonder that the beginning of their downward course was marked by a slow reluctance. Walworth endeavored to make good the shortages occasioned through his brother's clippings by entrusting Anne with commissions on his behalf upon the open board, affairs in which she was no more successful for him than for herself while his wife, for the first time, made some efforts in a society for which she had always had a shade of careless contempt. The Ogdens established themselves anew in a large building where they had four or five small rooms, and where they could breakfast and dine with a few hundred persons of like requirements and like situation. George now began renewed efforts to turn to account the property for which he had received deeds from McDowell, his half-year of married life had put him in an awkward and straitened position, and the usual activity in real property that comes with the spring was something of which the utmost advantage must be taken. He placed some of his outside acres with one or two good houses, but this entire side of business seemed pervaded by apathy. "'It's going to be an off year,' he was told. "'Acres are down, and it looks as if they were going to stay so, for some time anyway.' We'll take this, though, and do what we can. You pay this year's taxes, of course. So much for the real estate. McDowell's notes, 
which he had made to run for a longer term than pleased anybody but himself, showed the due and prompt endorsement of interest payments, and, if there was anything else in the general situation to call for graduation, Ogden failed to discover it. End of chapter 19